Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the great truths of your word that are summarised in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Father, um, Christians from the very early centuries have been affirming these things at their baptism, standing up and saying, I believe. And Father, it's important that we understand what it is that we believe. Many of us have, have made these promises ourselves at baptism, said, yes, I believe. But Father, as we refresh our understanding of these things, we pray that your spirit will do his work. Help us to take familiar words and see the depths and the riches and the beauty that's there in them. The great truths, the great divine truths, the great heavenly truths that they present to us. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read halfway through Mark's gospel, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter tells him, you are the Christ. It's the right answer, yeah? But in the conversation that follows, it becomes obvious actually that Peter doesn't really know what it means. And he actually, Peter tries to correct Jesus' understanding of Jesus' mission and identity. Uh, The words that we consider today, these titles of Jesus, they are very familiar ones. But if we want to avoid Peter's mistake, we need to make sure that we understand what they mean as the Bible reveals that to us. And it's, it's worth understanding because the import of these familiar words is magnificently good. So it begins, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Greek rendering of a common Jewish name, Yeshua. Uh, and it was, it, it, if we translated that straight into English, it, we would render it as Joshua. That's the name. It was a name that had been born by countless men from very famous ones like the Joshua who led God's people when the walls of Jericho fell, all the way to anonymous peasants. We believe in a real human man who had a real human name. Despite everything else I'm going to go on to say about him, the figure that we're talking about today, the figure that we worship, was a real, fully human man. He didn't pretend to be a man. He didn't disguise himself to look like a man. He was a man. To use the theological language, he had a genuine human nature. He was truly human. And this is important. To, to fit humanity for eternal life, he had to become truly human. To redeem humanity from its curse, he had to become truly human. Uh, more on that next week. To say, I believe in Jesus, is to affirm his true human nature. And it's also to recognise something else about his identity because of what his name means. You know what it means. What does the name Jesus mean? What does it mean? You've heard me preach it at Christmas many times. God saves. God saves. In their separate angelic encounters, both um, Joseph and Mary were told that the child to be born was to be named Jesus. And... In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we are explicitly told why. Because he will save his people from their sins. 
we believe that this man Jesus is the way that God saves people from their sins. And the first implication of that is an uncomfortable one. I need to be saved from my sins. In our hyper-positive culture where self-love often seems to be the highest love, it is blasphemous to even suggest that we are less than perfect just the way we are. We're down on every sort of shaming, including sin shaming. But no matter how many of those games that we play, we can't avoid the reality that we thought about last week. We are creatures with an almighty creator. And that almighty creator, he holds us accountable for how we live in this world that he made while we enjoy all the blessings of it, which he showers on us every single day. And he doesn't hold us to our standards, he holds us to his standard. He doesn't ask, have you been true to yourself and followed your heart, Craig? He asks, have you been true to my holy purposes and have you followed my good word? And of course, the person who has any sense of self-awareness and any grasp of reality would have to say, no, I have failed to do that. Plenty of times I have disrespected you. Plenty of times I've done things and said things that hurt people you loved, people you'd made in your own image. Plenty of times I've mishandled the good things of creation that you've entrusted to me. Plenty of times I've acted like I was God, not you. Plenty of times I've broken your holy law. If you haven't accepted that about yourself... Today is the day to wake up and smell the reality. God sent Jesus to save people from sin because we need saving from sin. And God meant you too. The second implication is a magnificent one. It is possible to be saved from our sins and the hell that they deserve because God has sent us a saviour. It is possible to be saved from our sins and the hell they deserve because God has sent us a saviour. You can't save yourself. That's a doomed and futile project. That is beyond our capacity. But Jesus came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Mary and Joseph were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will grow up and he'll die on a cross where those sins will be atoned for and the penalty for them will be paid in full by a substitute. By the blood of Jesus, we are justified before God, made in God's sight just as if I'd never sinned. Give him your trust and he will save you from your sins and the hell they deserve and he will save you into something far, far better, which we're going to consider in a moment. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. We're so used to talking about Jesus Christ that it can almost feel like Christ is his surname. I'm Craig Schaefer, he's Jesus Christ, this is Jesus Christ. But Christ is not a surname, it's a title. You, some of you have heard me, it's not like Craig Schaefer, it's like Bob the Builder. It's a title. Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, they both mean the same thing, anointed. 
anointed. In the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, you see three classes of people anointed. What are the th- can you tell me what are the three classes of people that get anointed in the Old Testament? Kings, priests, prophets. At least once, prophets. Priests, kings, prophets. What each of those three officers have in common was that they were set apart. They were marked out for a special work of God. They were called to devote themselves to that special work of God and God would enable them and empower them for it. In most cases, literally, the sacred oil was poured on their heads to to symbolise that. And if you know your Old Testament, it will be obvious to you that God initiated the anointing. God initiated the setting apart. Nobody got to decide for themselves that they were going to be God's priests or king or prophet. God did the choosing. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is the one whom God chose and empowered for a special work. It's to say that his ministry wasn't a self-appointed ministry. No, God sent him to do what he did. This is why every single person on this planet has to take him seriously. He is the one whom God ordained, whom God sent. For what purpose did God send him? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. To understand why God sent him, we need to understand what it means that he is God's only son. And to understand what that means, we first need to look back into the Old Testament to that passage Toby read us from 2 Samuel chapter 7. By way of context, well, Toby did it really. David is settled in the land. Uh, he subdued all Israel's enemies. Nations at peace. Covenant, Ark of the Covenant has been brought to Jerusalem. And David looks around at his great palace made out of cedar, which is apparently a very nice wood, uh, and looks at this and he thinks it's not right. That God's symbolic dwelling among his people is in a tent while he's in this awesome palace. And so he decides he will honour God by building a beautiful temple for him. But God sends the prophet Nathan to him to say, thanks, but no thanks. That's going to be somebody else's job. But I'm going to build a house for you, David. Not a physical house, but a kingdom from your descendants that will be forever and it will be led by a descendant of yours who will be so precious to me who I will love so powerfully that I will be his father and he will be my son he will be son of God and that promise echoed down through salvation history in the Psalms and in the Prophets So in Psalm 2, we talked a bit about Psalm 2 last week. In Psalm 2, you get that image of God Almighty establishing his anointed king, there's that word again, on Zion, his holy hill. And in the Psalm, God says of that king, you are my son. And he promises that he will inherit the ends of the earth as his royal possession. And that vision of a descendant of David, so precious to God that he is son of God, so empowered by God that he will rule a perfect eternal kingdom. It emerges again and again and again on the pages of the prophets as Israel and Judah fall apart and go into exile and they hold on to it. 
the son of David who is son of God will come and establish the eternal kingdom because of God, what God has promised. They held on to it. The son of David who is son of God, yes he will come and establish the eternal kingdom because God has promised it. No matter what happened to them, no matter how many doors seemed to close, no matter how impossible it looked, the son of David who is son of God will come and establish the eternal kingdom because God has promised it. And then, 400 years later, at Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan, at the beginning of his ministry, there's that supernatural moment where the voice of God is heard from heaven. And what does God declare? This is my son. Could God make it any more obvious? He literally parted the heavens and spoke. Jesus is the answer to the promise to David. Jesus is the one that Psalm 2 is about. Jesus is the Son of God who establishes the perfect eternal kingdom. That's what God sent Jesus to do. What he does in his teaching and in his death and in his resurrection and his ascension is establish that eternal kingdom. David was a great king, but he died. He wasn't fit to rule an eternal kingdom. He died. Jesus also died, but rose again into an indestructible and eternal life. That's why he's fit to rule an eternal kingdom. God has done this in our world. He has established the eternal, indestructible, forever kingdom that will ultimately replace this fallen and sin-scarred world. And he invites us to enter into it by putting our faith in his eternal king. So, Jesus is son of God in the sense that he is the king who fulfills God's amazing promises in 2 Samuel 7. But as the Gospels unfold in the New Testament, it becomes obvious that the meaning of this title, Son of God, is, is deeper than even the prophets foresaw. You get, and you get a glimpse of it in the, even in the Christmas narrative. The angel doesn't just say he's, you've got to give him the name Jesus. He also says he will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And then as as he grows up, Jesus talks to his disciples about himself and he says some pretty weird things. Things that the, his religious opponents heard as blasphemy. Before Abraham was, I am. I came from the Father and entered the world. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And his disciples reflected those things he said about himself and the things they wrote about him afterwards. And so at the beginning of his magnificent gospel, John writes those immortal and mysterious words in the beginning was the word 
and the word was with God and the word was God. Paul in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, he's talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And then in Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is a man. But he and his disciples also claimed that he had existed before the creation of the world and the glory of God. Before the creation of the world, what existed? Only God existed. This is a claim to be God. The reason that Jesus can be the perfect eternal King, the Son of God, is that he is at the same time God the Son. And so like last week, in affirming the most fundamental facts of the gospel, we're drawn again into the mystery of God's Trinitarian existence. When we do business with Jesus, we don't just stand before the perfect human leader God sent. We stand before God himself, who has come among us, the divine son, who added a human nature to his divine nature to redeem a fallen human race and to lead us into his perfect eternal kingdom. And that flavours the last thing that we affirm about Jesus in the second line of the Apostles' Creed. My last point, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Our Lord. In the Old Testament, if you spoke about the Lord, everybody knew you were talking about God, right? Right? To call anybody else the Lord would get you beaten to death with rocks for blasphemy. In the New Testament, those first Jewish background, Old Testament believing apostles regularly spoke about Jesus as the Lord. Paul does it, Peter does it, James does it, Jude does it. The writer of Hebrews does it. In Revelation, John does it. In fact, he is forever flipping backwards and forwards from speaking of the Father as Lord and Jesus as Lord. They didn't believe themselves to be speaking blasphemy. They had been forced to confront and accept the fact that Jesus possessed the very authority of God himself because he was God come among us in the person of the Son. Because we have so often seen power abused, our age goes in for dismantling authority structures and smashing hierarchies. We don't like lords. And history gives us ample reason to mistrust authority in human hands, to seek checks and balances on the earthly exercise of power by fallen, limited, fallible people like us. There is wisdom in being ambivalent about human power. But at the same time, we must recognise the reality 
that God has made Jesus, who is Christ and Son of God, Lord. Submission is a dirty word in our moment because so many of those we are called to submit to have done dirty things and abused their power and authority. But this must not blind us to the fact that God has made Christ Lord. He has anointed, he is anointed, he is the Christ. In resurrection he has been given an eternal kingdom and Jesus has complete authority over it. Faithful submission to his lordship is God's intention for the human race. He's our brother who loves us, he's our friend, he's our teacher, he's our saviour, but above all things he is the Lord. And this is good because he possesses the power of resurrection life. He has the perfect power needed to be Lord of all. And he's the divine son through whom the universe was made. And so he has the perfect wisdom to be Lord of all. And he is the saviour who willingly humbled himself at the cross, who willingly took on the terrible weight of divine judgment, who willingly cloaked his eternal glory and made himself nothing to save unworthy sinners. And so he has the perfect love to be Lord of all. This is why the the, the apostles delighted to not just call him the Lord, but our Lord. He's the Lord of everything, whether we acknowledge it or not. He doesn't stop being Lord because you say, yeah, I don't believe that. He's Lord of everything, whether we acknowledge it or not. But they acknowledged and celebrated and delighted in his lordship over them because it's so good and perfect. He's the Lord who is incorruptible. He's the Lord who never makes a mistake or can't figure out the right path. He's the Lord who never fails. He's the Lord who always knows what is wise and who always acts out of love. What a privilege to be able to say he is my Lord, he is our Lord. And if I trust him as Lord and celebrate him as Lord, then I must obey him as Lord. If I trust him as Lord and celebrate him as Lord, then I must obey him as Lord. In theory, that's no burden. Because you know, his perfect wisdom, his perfect power, his perfect love means that every single thing he ever commands is good. In theory, no drama. In practice, we're fallen people, surrounded by fallen people who are constantly tempted to the delusion that we have a better handle on things than the Lord does. It sounds stupid when you say it like that, doesn't it? But we believe it all the time. You know, we think we know better than the one who is Christ, Son of God and Lord. And so part of the battle of faith is the battle of obedience. In a culture that seeks, for example, to redefine love and to hate on those who don't go along, will we act like Christ is Lord? In a culture that demands affirmation of what Christ calls sin and that hates on those who won't go along, will we act like Christ is Lord? 
There's a state election campaign on at the moment and also some important political issues in play at the federal level. In a moment where politicians appeal to our earthly desires and fears, where they nudge us to demonise others and have us focus on earthly power structures, will we act like Christ is Lord? Because Christ is Lord. And this is good because having loved us all the way to the cross and having risen from the dead and ascended to God's right hand in heaven as saviour, as son of God he is the one uniquely anointed and fitted to be Lord and the only one worthy of our ultimate trust as Lord. Jesus says to you, who do you say that I am? Do you know the right answer? Or do you believe the right answer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit will work in each one of our hearts so that we both know and believe the right answer. Father, help us to see clearly how good it is that Jesus is Lord. Father, help us to rejoice that he is the Son of God and that he invites us to be part of that eternal kingdom. Father, help us to love the fact that you have sent someone to lead us into that kingdom. You've anointed someone for that task. And Father, fill us with joy that there is a saviour for our sins. That this man, who is also God, has done that for us, has saved us from the horror that we deserve and invites us into that eternal kingdom with all its glory where he will lead us as Lord full of perfect power, perfect wisdom and perfect love. Father, help us to see the truth about who he is and to love it. But Father, help us to live it. That's not always easy. We don't always make it easy for ourselves. But Father, help us to live it because he is worthy of our obedience, he is worthy of our love, he is worthy of our trust, he is worthy of our honour, he is worthy of our glory. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.